God never came to me when he when he saved me and said, Andre, you're a robber, you're a dope fiend, you're dead, be dead, you're sorry, hook. All God said was, if you trust me right now, I'll make some out of your life. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today we're opening our radio show, Archive Vault, and airing an interview we did back in 2010 with Pastor Andre Guy Reed of the Revelation Christian Center in North Memphis. If you've wondered if God can save anybody and use anybody for His glory and purpose, if you've got a family member running the opposite direction from God and the love of Jesus Christ, stay with me. Rewinding now to 2010, I want you to hear Andre's story. Andre, did you grow up here in Memphis? Oh, yes, right in North Memphis. Actually, we were the Jeffersons when I was growing up. My father was a 1968 sanitation worker. He owned his own dumping business. My mother worked for Pace Industries, and she owned a beauty shop. And we grew up in a two-parent family household, uh, going to church. Uh, it's really like, I guess, the, the black leave it to beavers. It's pretty good. I mean, you know, when we got to be age of teenagers, then, of course, you know, I decided to make my own decision. Well, that wholesome life that I thought wasn't so wholesome, I don't want that anymore. Why give up on all that? You know, I, church didn't fit good. I'll tell you, when I was seven years old, I had a dream that God was telling me he wanted me to preach. It was a crazy dream, and uh, he said that if you don't preach, people in your family are going to die, you know. And, well, when I turned seven, the guy who I thought was my father, George Guy, because I didn't find out who my father was until I was 38. The guy who I thought was my father, George Guy, he died when I was seven. My sister died when I was 11. When I was 15, uh, the son that she died giving birth to, he died in me and my mother's arms, and the last word he said was, Andre, you got to preach, and he died. I got angry with God. Got angry with the church, and when I was 16, when I was able to make my own decision, I'm not going to church anymore, Mama. And I left church and decided that drugs and crime were a better career. How deep in drugs and crime did you go? Oh, my God. Uh, federal government has a—they gave me a 50-count indictment. It said that I stole $357,000, which is a lie. I stole more than that. I armed robbed a Rexall drugstore. Council City Councilman Glenn Rains, he was in the store. I, I was robbing. I was, uh, I was shooting about $20,000 a week. Shooting dope, snorting dope, smoking dope, swallowing dope. I mean, everything they got on the market, I did it. Uh, got so far on drugs that uh, I even one time stole my mother's TV, and she was big. Me, Andre, don't take it. And I kicked her away from the van as I snatched the cord in the van to drive off to go sell her TV. I was deep in drugs, deep in crime. How did you get to that point? What was the first step that took that downward way? I think the same thing that happened is happening in the neighborhoods today. That's why... I, I go ahead putting the fathers back into the household. When George Guy died when I was seven years old, I was the oldest boy. So I don't have a male influence now to show me what it's like to be a man. No matter, my mother was a good mother, but no matter what mother she was, a woman can't teach a boy how to be a man. So the guys in the neighborhood that I grew up in, they showed me how to, how to pimp. They showed me how to rob. They showed me how to sell dope, how to use dope. But nobody showed me about education. Even when I graduated from high school, and I would catch the bus to Lamont on in the snow. And uh, they would laugh at me. I mean, they, you know, you come to go to that school, to that school they're not going to help you. And there was no encouragement for, for the positive things in life. But now let, if I get out of jail, oh, they'll give you some money and some drugs to get back on your feet. And so I became a product of, of my environment. And it was appealing to me. I mean, you know, we like the flesh. I, uh, I tell my congregation all the time, isn't it odd that you have to train your spirit, but the flesh comes naturally. I've never seen a child misspell a curse word. They don't mispronounce them either. You know, we we learn fleshly things, so it was a desire to want to be like the world and in the environment that I came from. Was there any time when you were sitting in that jail cell, you're saying, why did it have to come to this? Why am I here? Or are you just getting more and more bitter? The only time that it came to me 
while I was there when I did surrender to Christ, my first couple of years in, in prison, uh, like I said, uh, I became a Muslim because that fit perfectly for what I was going through. I wanted to blame somebody other than myself. So Islam taught me that the system was wrong, that all white men are the blonde-haired, blue-eyed devil, and that fit right up my out of what I needed. Because I was studying to be an imam. After a while, the hate consumed me. Now explain what that means, being an imam. The, imam is the same thing as a Christian pastor. I mean, I was so deep into Islam. I was doing the Adamani, Adahim, Adamani, Adadin, the Bismillah, Nidak, man. I can do some Arabic now. As a matter of fact, God actually... The time I was studying to be an imam prepared me for my Christian journey because most of the people that are involved in Islam, especially when they join it because they're black, I showed them things in the Quran that they didn't even know. You know, Farrakhan would come out and try to tell you that we're worshiping the same God and Allah and Jehovah. No, that's not true. Your, your Quran teaches that Allah had no sons and that whenever you get a chance, if I don't believe that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet, the first chance you get, you're supposed to cut my head off. I don't care what relationship we are, what color we are. Well, most people that jump into that, they don't even realize that's in the Quran. They don't join it because they believe in Islam. They believe in being black. And so. And you're explaining the difference now. Is there a difference, Andre, between the nation of Islam and what we see the Islam that comes from the Middle East? Big difference. The Middle Eastern branch of Islam, they don't even fool with the American branch, the black Muslims, as they call. The black Muslims believe that wasn't it, Fahd Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad were actually God in the flesh. They don't believe that Elijah Muhammad is dead, that he's in some spaceship hooving around looking down on us, and that one day they're called the mothership. The mothership is going to come and get all the black Muslims and put us on the mothership and take us to eternity. The Islam in the Middle East, they're more orthodox Islam, where they believe in Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. They do not subscribe to the black Muslims over here in America because Islam in the Middle East does not teach that the white man is the devil. Elijah Muhammad, what he did was he capitalized on a time in the 1960s in America where the civil rights movement was big and there was a lot of racial disparity. So he capitalized on those emotions of black people where in the Middle East it not, has nothing to do with your color whatsoever. You have white Muslims. It has more so to do with that you accept Allah as God and Muhammad as his prophet. So the difference between the two is that Middle Eastern Muslims, they don't teach hatred of white men. American Muslims do. Now, when you see Muslims, they attack America. They're not attacking based on white. They're going to attack me just as hard as they attack you. They're attacking based on belief. See, they're attacking Christian nations. That's what the problem. What we got is we got a fight between Ishmael and uh, Isaac. You know, Ishmael was supposed to be the firstborn, so he was supposed to have the birthright. And he didn't get the birthright. And Isaac, so we would have been saying the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and whoever instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the big difference. Islam still was not meeting the deep spiritual need of your heart, and you left that and went into Buddhism. Went to Buddhism. I was doing my little chance. I'm dilly dum dum dilly dum day. I'm dilly dum dilly dum day, and I tried that, and myself, God, that didn't work. And was this all while you were in prison? This the first two years while I was in prison. The first two years were they were interesting to say the least. So when the Buddhism didn't work, then I tried atheism. Well. I mean, every morning, it was a ritual with me. The first thing I did when I woke up, I told God, I hate you. You MF, you SOB, you're not real. Do something about it. You're not real. And when I read that Bible, I read it with every intensity. I was going to learn every word in there. So every preacher that came through, I was going to tear them up and down. And I lost count of how many preachers and chaplains that I made quit. And when I had that experience in my cell, I cannot even tell you where I was. I know I was halfway through the New Testament. But something that's clicked. And I mean, I saw me in... In my, my pain and my purpose, and 
And I felt God come in that cell. No one in the world can tell me that God didn't come in that cell with me. And at that moment, I knew you are real. He wasn't the problem. The people I had learned the word was the churches I grew up in, where you see the preacher preaching, but I know Pastor Jones has a baby by Sister Johnson, or I see Deacon Thompson at the church. I also see Deacon Thompson at the club. Well, what I was doing was I was looking for God inside of people, and that's where I got the wrong message at. But when I found him in his word, you can't miss it. I mean, when God came into my life, it was like there are no problems in the world for me anymore. You can't even kill me because he promised me eternal life. I don't have to worry about food. He's going to provide that for me. I've never seen an elephant losing weight. I've never seen a gorilla on a diet, and I've never seen a giraffe looking for a job. All of them are bigger than me, so if God's going to feed them, he's going to feed me. I'm his crown jewel. I'm his creation. When you got out of prison, mm-hmm. you were a changed man. Christ had made a difference no, in your did, life. He did. He uh, did. So often, people who have had a life of crime, drugs, gangs, go into the system, come out either in worse shape, you know, mm-hmm. and it cycles. They, it's, now it's time to do some more crime, the more drugs, and go back. Mm-hmm. What about for you? I mean, were you totally set free, ready to start a new life? So-so. Uh, when I got out, uh, I still had a dibbling and dabbling in me. I tried to go out there and maybe so still uh, try to be the playboy. Matter of fact, I think the first job I got <laughs> when I got out of prison, I was a male stripper. Male stripper for about about three or four years. Uh, still reading my Bible, going to church, just going through the motion. But where I was, I was complacent. I was happy enough for Christ to just be with me if I go to church on Sunday, if I go to church on Wednesday to the Bible study. That should be enough for you, God. That should satisfy you. Well, of course, I found no happiness. And I found myself spiraling, had lots of money, lots of cars, lots of women. I also saw myself headed back toward the same behavior that got me incarcerated. And so I had to have a wake-up call. So I sit around, and I, that's when I started fasting. I had heard about fasting, and I started trying, and I fasting it. God connected with me. That's when he told me he wanted me to be a preacher. And I didn't want to hear that. And I tried to run from that for about a year, maybe even two years. And after a while, I found that no matter what I did in the church, I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't fulfilled. And that's when I surrendered. I said, God, I'll go ahead and do what you said. And believe me, the first two or three years, man, it was so hard. I remember one night I went in my backyard. Cause I think I quit like two or three. I'm through with this. These church people are too hard to deal with and forget all this. And I went in my backyard one of the days I had quit. And I realized something. I don't have anywhere to go. If I quit God right now, where can I go? Can I go back to being a drug addict? Go back to being a convict? Go back to being a stripper? Where can I go? Where would I want to go? And I looked up in heaven with all the might I had. I said, God, if you try to leave me, I'll stalk you to the ends of the earth. And I felt God smile at me. He said, that's the way I want you to love me. I don't want life without God. I don't want money without God. I have nothing to prove to man, I have something to prove to God. Everybody that I run, I tell people, if I can't help you, I would die before I hurt you. That goes for my worst enemy in the world. That's power. When I know that the same man that would rob you, that would kill you, now would give his life to heal you, that's God. You know, Andre, I was just thinking about the story of Jacob wrestling that angel. And <laughs> as that angel was holding on to Jacob. I'm and not going to let you go until you bless me. Do you bless me. You know, the angel was saying, let me go. But I think inside he was saying, don't let me go. You know, don't let me go. And I think God really wants to see really how real we are sometimes. He does. You know, we have to really get to the bottom. We have to see that we are totally desolate, a desert without the life of him. You know, I think what it was, as you asked the question, the word comes to mind, intimate. 
I had a superficial relationship with God when I was just going to church. But when I got intimate with him, well, I got to know him personally. I used to look at the Holy Spirit as a it. But then I started realizing not a it, it's a he. It's him living inside of me. And when I do things that are not of a holy nature, I grieve him. And I love him enough. When you're intimate with somebody, you want to please them. And I want to please him enough to where I don't want to see you grieve God. And, you know, after I finally got over that I have nowhere to go, I don't think there's really anything else that I want to do in life. I, I love preaching the word is the easiest part of my job. I love the fact when I get out of that poor pit and I see people that have came to that church and 90 days later they were drug addicts and they were ex-cons or they were deadbeat dads, they were sorry hoods, and 90 days later I see them living wholesome, stable lives. That's my reward. No pastor's anniversary can match up to that. That's my reward. Where and how did you meet your wife? I uh, got out of prison. The last time I got out of prison, uh, Mason Federal Prison. And uh, I've been doing grant programs ever since I was 14 years old. So uh, they had a job waiting for me as a deputy director of some of youth programs in Fayette County, some of you Tennessee. Took my oldest daughter, me and her moved down there. And, uh, and uh, I had to interview the staff with a lady. My uh, director at that time was Betty Reddit. Betty wanted me to interview one of the locals down there. had a master's degree. She was on the school board. I said, no, Betty, I, uh, my agreement was my contract. And when I come here, I'm going to restaff this office with all my people. I don't want anybody from Fayette County. Cause that's where the problem came in the first place. And no, so Betty stayed on about three days. So finally, I interviewed Miss Lisa Cox. Keep in mind, I haven't had two failed marriages before this. None of them, I never consulted God on it. She came to interview, and the day I laid eyes on her, I knew that was my wife. And Betty told me after the interview, I said, Betty, I got to have her. In what way, Andre? I said, what do you mean, Betty? She said, Andre, I've been watching you do interviews for over five years. I have never seen you do a soft interview. You didn't even grill her. And you didn't want to. I said, Betty, look, it's not what you said. Okay, Andre. Well, after about four months, we finally started dating, and, and I fired her. Because once we started dating, she wouldn't work, and I fired her. And you go, I'll see you when we get home. And we got married. We have a wonderful child together. You know, show your opposites of track. When I met my wife, she was 26 years old with a master's degree from Ole Miss on the school board of a Fed County, a supervisor in the mental health field. Never been to jail, no drugs, good guys all her life. Here she goes marrying the criminal. And she prayed and she asked God, is this the man for me to marry? And I asked her, what did he tell you? He said, what did you ask me for? She said, well, I asked him for a man that, that loves him and would love me. I didn't know it would come in the form of a drug addict alcoholic because <laughs> at that time I was still drinking and dabbling, dabbling with the drugs. Well, Lisa, the first three years of our marriage were, were kind of rocky, but she stuck with the Lord. And, and you know what, it, what really made me stop doing drugs? I came in one night. I had used up all the money. I think the house note and the car note money on drugs. So I'm looking for some fighting, some cursing, some stuff like that to go on. She came in. She said, you know, I was praying while you were gone. Let me run you some bath water, make you some food, because I feel in my heart that while you're out there at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, God gave you me as a husband and our child as a father, and I just believe that you're going to find some way to protect us while you're out in those streets. And that woman left the room. I would have rather for her to hit me in my head with a jack eye because I sat there and I realized, wait a minute, you sitting right here dibbling and dabbling with God. God has given you this woman, this child. What are you doing? That's been over 12 years ago. Ain't even thought about drugs. You know, addictions are so powerful. Ooh, they are. They yeah. are. 
They really are. And, and, and so oftentimes people will say, you just got to stop. It takes more. You know, our own human effort, you can't do that. Right, exactly. You know, whether it be alcoholism, it, drug addiction. Something traumatic has to happen within your life. I mean, whether it's a rehab program or like in my particular case, where the Holy Spirit stepped in because I forgot. But see, God had delivered me from drugs once before. When I was over at the Miracle Temple Ministries, I was shooting drugs then. That's when I just started back going to church. That's when I told you when I was escalating from the stripping, well, I was headed back the other way. Well, I went to church one Sunday. The woman that I was living with at that time, I didn't have any keys to the house, credit card. I mean, I had everything. I was stealing everything. I got back on drugs. I went to church that Sunday, woke up that Monday morning, and I said, Beverly, something happened to me. She looked, she said, did. Overnight, it was like I never took the drug, never took a drink, never smoked a cigarette. It was gone. She gave me the key and everything back then. I went about maybe two months. All of a sudden, I don't go to church every Sunday anymore. Who really needs Wednesday night Bible study? And after two months, that demon came back, and he came back with seven more friends stronger. And my drug habit came back, and I went to God. I said, God, take it away again. I know you can do it. You show me you can do it. Take it away. He said, no, this time you're going to work for it. I did it then to show you that I could do it. But I also knew you wouldn't appreciate it. That's why I tell people in the church, your faith in your spirit is only going to be as strong as you work it. It's just like a muscle. The more you work it, yeah. the stronger it gets. And so through all that process, I mean, and all those mishaps that happened during my journey, they were what was necessary for my life to stand fast on where I'm at now because I tell people I don't defend the gospel. The gospel defends itself. I just stand on the gospel. But I've learned that if I just live this Christ-like life, I don't even have to shove Jesus down your throat. You're going to come ask me about it because you're going to see the peace. You're going to see my happiness. And most importantly, you're going to see my love. Andre, God has given you a ministry now that is in the heart of crime, drugs, prostitution. You got it. It's not the place that the most people think about Sunday church. You got you it. Know? But that's where you are right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't trade it. You know, I have such a respect and a love from the people in that neighborhood. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to change overnight. And Aren't these the type of people that Jesus hung with? Last time I checked, that was the one that he went looking for. And you, know, and, and, you know, if you get out there to get to meet them, you find out they're not really as bad as what you think they are. They're misguided. They don't have love. But, you know, God planted in my heart, you can't look for the government to fix their neighborhood. You can't look for the police to fix their neighborhood. It's not white people that's supposed to fix their neighborhood. It's people just like myself that help destroy that neighborhood. A lot of my white members that come in, and I love them so much, God knows I do. And they come in once we get them where we've deprogrammed them, so to speak, and they come in and show them the healthy things that they can do in life. You'll be surprised how many people that come through my congregation that I've never had a chance to fellowship with white people outside of the workplace. Or, or they sit and looking, well, you know, he's clapping. You didn't think white people clap for God? He's singing. And guess what? If you watch them long enough, they will shout too. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you say that term, deprogram them, mm-hmm. what's the process? What do you mean by that? The environment, you've grown up thinking... I call it a poverty mentality, where you're thinking that I'm never going to be anything in life. I'm never going to have anything in life. And what I have is not good enough. Where they think that in order for them to be successful, once they reach a degree, get a, a degree from school or get a certain amount of money, I've got to move to Germantown or Cordova or Bartlett in order for me to live a wholesome life. Well, I have to show them, no, this can be Germantown. This can be Bartlett, Cordova. What's wrong with manicuring our over here? 
What's wrong with not, not allowing crime? You know, they know that you can't just sit and watch crime in your neighborhood and not say anything, expect it to leave. So the things that they've accepted down through the years that you had to deprogram and let them know this is not normal behavior, nor is it healthy behavior. And uh, I try to take the church on three trips a year. Well, like we're going to June to Cozumel. We just got back from Destin, Florida for New Year's Eve. Uh, we're trying to get the Jerusalem trip together. That's going to take me about a year. That's a lot of money. Something that made me cry when I first started in ministry, when I took the kids to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and some of those kids, about to cry, think about now, some of those career kids, when they crossed the West Memphis, Arkansas Bridge, and they said, Pastor Guy, we're in another country now. It made me want to cry because they grew up in those neighborhoods, and that's all they see. So that's all they know. And then, then you got to look at the fact Three out of four children that I deal with in that neighborhood, the father's not in the family. So there's a family breakdown. It's God first, family second, and everything else. So there's a big breakdown right there. So I have to take the healthy men in the church, and we basically split ourselves up to be fathers for these kids that don't have fathers. The boys, they don't learn the manly example of being a father because the father's not in the house. The girls, they start acting out sexually because my daughter, she's healthy because I tell her all the time, I love you and you're pretty. So that's something she's used to hearing. So some boy come telling you that I love you and you're pretty. That's not going to be new to her. She won't know what's your goal in life. But most of these kids, they don't have that. They don't have someone to tell them that they love them, that you're pretty, that you can be successful. Most of these boys, they don't have anybody that's going to take them out and help them learn how to do auto mechanics or carpentry. Or they'll teach them how to sell dope. They'll teach them how to rob. They'll teach them how to throw gang signs. If you can learn how to throw all those different gang signs, then you can learn some, some tool or some skill to live a healthy life. So... I thank God that he put me there because a lot of the pastors, I'm not blaming them. A lot of them are not equipped to deal with what I do. I told you earlier when I came in, Charles Stanley, he's one of my mentors, him and Billy Graham. I mean, I'm big on those guys. Well, I wouldn't expect Charles or Billy to go in Hyde Park and deal with those drug dealers and gangbangers. That's not what God equipped them at. But people like me that, that have God has brought out of the thing, we can't be complacent and just be happy and just going to church every week and sitting in church and letting this world crumble around us. Memphis is the Bible Belt. I mean, we got a church on just about every corner. Some church, some corners, we got five churches. But we're the top ten of crime. Everybody's wearing a cross, but nobody's living it. And so that's what, when we deprogram, we have to get them to realize there's hope, and the hope is in Jesus Christ. Each day, the ministry of your church is the Revelation Christian Center. You're involved. As I said, you're touching the lives of those in your neighborhood. You have programs, you have ways, practical ways to make a difference. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah, just like my, uh, my homeless program, for example. At one point, I had seven men living in the church. There's a 90-day program where once they come in, uh, you know, we have no different rule where you can't, you know, profanity, you know, keep the church clean. And let's stop there for a second, Andre. You're not talking about, when you talk about a, a homeless ministry, they're in the church. That's where it's located. You're not sending these individuals to another shelter or a nope. homeless place. They're right there in your church. Right there. Most of the guys, uh, the one-armed bank robber, uh, the guy that uh, he just turned himself back in, he couldn't go to another program because he has one arm. So if he can work, then uh, he couldn't go into the Salvation Army program. So he had nowhere to go. And, and he was the one that actually had me start the program. And I looked around and Lord, what do I do? And I got about five offices in the church, and guys are turning them in the bedroom. And I looked at it real good. And Wait a minute. That can work. So we turned those offices into bedrooms. And what happened was in that 90-day period, it's not just a matter of we do no, no, give them the word of God and Jesus, but we go a step further. Uh, I learned that people didn't go hear Jesus preach because he could preach. They went to hear Jesus because he helped them. And once he helped them, they were willing to listen to what he had to say. So we get them in there to let them know, okay, this is a place of refuge. Well, while we have them there for that 90 days, we do things like take them to the Pink Palace or to the FedEx Forum or we might go to... Uh, 
the agri center, take them healthy places where there's healthy things so they can do. Because what happens is, once we deprogram and we remove some of the negative things out of their life, well, they spend a lot of time either dealing with, with negative people or negative places. They don't know healthy places, so they're afraid to go on their own. So once we expose it to them the first time and they get used to it, then now you actually have some tools that when negative things come up in your life, here's a positive alternative I can turn to. And it works. Uh, they, they started uh, realizing uh, we, if they got kids and they, they haven't been with their kids for a while, we make sure during that 90-day period that we get in contact with the other parent. We try to rejoin that back together to make them feel that the court system should make you take care of these children. Your heart for your children should make you take care of these children. And at, at that end, they get their pride back. Andre, I want to talk in our closing time together, and we've been talking about the miracles of Jesus Christ, still active and alive today. It's exciting to be able to share that life-changing message through Jesus Christ to our friends, because there are those listening right now that are hopeless and feel helpless, are in bondage, maybe not even to the degree you were, but in their own circumstances, they need Christ. He will do it. You know, no matter what situation you're out there, if you're listening, please know this. There is no problem too big for God. Jesus will meet you right where you at. Don't try to get yourself together. You're not going to make it. Bring yourself just like you are to Christ. Get into his word. Talk to God. If you take just five minutes a day to cut the radio TV off and talk to God, he'll talk back to you. He will direct you. He will sustain you. I've tried him. I've tried to prove God a lot. I guarantee you, you can't outgive God. You can't outlove God. You can try it. You won't succeed. Andre, those listening that might want to know how they can pray for your ministry, maybe how they could even support causes and efforts that you're doing to reach our community with Christ's love, how could they contact you? Go to andreguy.com, click on Revelation Christian Center. You can mail it to the church at 1561 Boxwood, Memphis, Tennessee, 38108. You can call me personally at 901 Three one five six zero one eight. We need all the help we can get. Like I said, we don't get any federal monies. Uh, we don't sell fish plates. We, we, we live off tides and offering. And the people that live in these programs, uh, every now and then somebody will come back and, and give a donation. But usually when they get on their feet, but usually don't see them again. That's okay. At least they're going to tell somebody else about that church over there with those Christians that, that helped me. In closing thoughts, Andre, why are you thankful for God's love? He found somebody who wasn't worthy. And when God does something different than everybody else, God never came to me when he, when he saved me and said, Andre, you're a robber, you're a dope fiend, you're dead be dead, you're sorry hood. All God said was, if you trust me right now, I'll make some out of your life. And I promise you out there, if you trust him, it makes some out of yours. 